As I said last week, uh, just a few moments ago last week, we, we um, began this message. I was anticipating it would be a two-parter, so we got about halfway through it, perhaps, and uh, we should get through the second half either today or next week. Um, I have permission to do that, to go into next week, so... So uh, I may take advantage of that. Uh, We'll see. Last week, uh, as I said, we we covered this topic of divisiveness in the church, and I won't bother to review the whole deal for you this week. I'm just going to simply commend the the CD to you um, for what you missed. But there are three key thoughts which I discussed last week, which I kind of wanted to remind you of this week to kind of just emphasize what it is that we're talking about. Uh, first of the three is that there is an underlying tone of divisiveness throughout the New Testament. And that is my whole purpose here is to attempt to draw out this common theme which traces itself through many of the letters of the New Testament. You know, with the Jews and the Gentiles being thrust together after centuries of enmity, uh, with false teachers creeping into the church and ripping it apart from the inside out, with sort of hamartiological hangover or sin hangover uh, uh, coming to people who had recently come to know Christ, there is a consistent effort on the part of the apostles to address the issue of divisiveness within the congregations. Uh, They're exhorting them constantly to a greater level of unity, learning to get along with one another because their sin and all these outside influences are attempting to tear the church apart. A casual reading of the New Testament ought to be able to kind of give you that impression, but you could overlook it very easily. Secondly, the church is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Uh, That was one of the biggest points I was trying to make last week. I hope you didn't miss it. But Christ is the head of the church. Thus, the church must not be divided. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians there, is Christ divided? And the answer is no. Uh, The Spirit of God indwells the church. Thus, the church must not be divided. Um, to tamper with the unity of the church is to tamper with the unity of the Godhead, essentially, because when one part of it splits off, the spirit inhabiting that person, the church is divided, the spirit becomes divided. The church is the temple of God, and it is not to be divided. It is the dwelling place of God. Along these uh, same lines, uh, the third point is that sanctification, while it it takes uh, takes shape in the life of an individual. It's a process of growth in the individual. Uh, it always takes place in the context of the church as a larger whole. The, the believer has a personal responsibility to God and to grow, but it always takes place in a corporate setting and has an effect on the community around the individual. Uh, that's what much of the New Testament would tell you. Your, your individual sin tendencies has an effect on the body as a whole. The use of your gifts has an effect of the body, uh, effect on the body as a whole. Uh, so there's a corporate dimension to sanctification, which I'm trying to draw out here. And because we're united together by the Spirit and we're one in the Spirit, we have responsibilities to the body as a whole, as the dwelling place of the Spirit, not simply to ourselves as individuals. So those are the three big points that I was trying to make last week, and I hope you caught them. Uh, this week... Uh, We will again be looking at the 12 proven methods of how to split a church uh, with the hopes that you will do just the opposite. As I said last week, 
It is my goal that you will not listen to a single word I'm telling you, that you will not do what I'm asking you to do. I'm teaching you how to split a church, but my hope is that you will not split this one. So we are looking at the the books of the Bible in kind of a broad overview survey fashion. I am just bouncing off the treetops here. I am not going deep down into uh, text as I normally would. Um, But... uh, This is intended to be a broad treatment so you can see the general theme through the New Testament. You can see it's there. And then individual books of the Bible, what they're doing is addressing this theme and the particulars of how it's playing out in individual congregations or geographical regions or whatever. So the first five that we looked at, again, we were looking at 12 Proven methods to split a church. The first five were just by way of reminder there on your handout to be factious or to choose sides. We looked at the book of first Corinthians for that. We said, secondly, abuse your freedom in Christ. Again, first Corinthians chapter six through ten. Uh, third, be critical of the leadership and refuse to submit. We looked at second Corinthians for that. Fourth, walk in your flesh. Galatians chapter 5, we looked at. And fifth, consider yourself to be racially superior. We looked at the book of Ephesians for that. So here we are, number six. Uh, Be prideful. Be prideful. You can write that there on your handout. Turn to the book of Philippians. Let me just tell you Philippi's predicament in Macedonia, if I can, just for a moment to set the stage. Uh, Philippi was the first European church planted by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 50. So Paul's on his second missionary journey. You'll remember he he kind of came across into Europe. He planted the church of Philippi. He went down to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, finally to Corinth. He made his way down there. And so now it is some ten years later and the Apostle Paul finds himself under house arrest in Rome. Uh, And so the church at Philippi loves Paul, and so they want to send him comfort in the form of companionship by Epaphroditus, who is more than likely the pastor of that church. Uh, They also uh, sent him a large monetary gift. Uh, They collected everything they had, worldly treasures, and they sent it along with Epaphroditus. And so they uh, wanted to encourage the Apostle Paul, but on the way, this man of Epaphroditus, either on the way there or after he arrived there shortly, uh, this man Epaphroditus takes ill. Uh, And so he uh, becomes ill almost to the point of death. So as you can imagine, the church back at home in Philippi, imagine what they're going through. Uh, The situation would cause a measure of anxiety among them. Uh, Their beloved Paul is in prison. Their uh, Their pastor, perhaps, was gone and sick and perhaps even dying. And they had just given away much of their earthly treasures to go and send to Paul in support of him. Uh, If you'll recall your geography, Philippi is also a small Roman colony in the middle of Macedonia. It's located kind of northeast on the top of Macedonia. And it was known as Little Rome. And because Philippi was a Roman colony... uh, It was outposted in the middle of Greece, a little Roman colony in the middle of Greece. And Roman veterans would often retire there and settle there. If you were a resident of Philippi, you were uh, Roman citizens 
were in Philippi in the middle of a Greek culture. So then on top of that, here you have this little church with Christians who are in a Roman colony in the middle of Greece. And so you can understand why Paul would write to them, exhorting them to remember their heavenly citizenship while they're in the world. Kind of the same idea that their citizenship, even though Roman, is actually in Greece, but actually they're Christians in the world. And that is what Paul is trying to encourage them to. They were an outpost on the frontier of the pagan world, which by itself would cause a measure of anxiety in anybody, I think. But Paul wrote to remind them of their citizenship in heaven. So if they were going to survive uh, the infighting that was happening within the church, they needed to be of the same mind. They needed to have the same mindset. They needed to be united in their purpose and in their theme. And so the key to understanding this book comes in chapter 4, if you'll turn over there. What's going on? Why would Paul write this letter? Well, we've said some things already, but I think the key to understanding this is over in 4.2. With the anxiety levels rising in the church, uh, two of the members begin to go after each other, two of the women in particular. And he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, to be of the same mind, literally. Uh, So two of the women in the church are holding on to their pride And they're refusing to live in harmony with each other. So Paul's exhortation to them is to be of the same mind, to live in unity, to live in harmony. What is this same mind that Paul is talking about? Well, it starts back in chapter 1 and verse 27, if you want to flip back there. The Apostle Paul says, "...only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's the one mind again. Over in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Have the same mind. 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of Mind, there it is again. And then over in 2.5, he says, have this mind, literally, or attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was that attitude? What is the theme of this book? It is not joy, as many of the commentaries would tell you. It is humility. The answer is humility. And Paul illustrates it beautifully with the humiliation of Christ, which is in the verses which follow. Uh, We read of this story about Christ humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. You know, we as preachers normally give you the doctrine up front and then we try to make application to your life afterwards. And what the Apostle Paul has done is just flip-flop that for us. He has given us the application to live in unity, to consider one another more important than uh, each other, and to look out for the interests of others, not merely themselves. And he's illustrated it beautifully by giving us the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. So the answer to this book is humility. Christ humbled himself in mind first, and he didn't regard his rights a thing to be grasped. And this, of course, resulted in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his exaltation. Humility is the key to the book. If you look down even further, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul uses himself 
as an illustration of humility. I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Uh, You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Suffer for the cause of Christ in humility. He also uses Timothy, verses uh, 19 through 24, as an example. And then he concludes the chapter, verses 25 to 30, with the example of Epaphroditus. And he's talking about humility. Humility was the solution to the problems. So he tells the church over in chapter 4, he says, They're to be anxious for nothing. They're to pray with thanksgiving. And they are to let their requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, right, would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. So be of the same mind and it will establish peace. And that mind, again, is humility. Uh, Chapter 3, just of note, what he tells them is uh, beware of the false circumcision, beware of the dogs, he calls them, beware of the evil workers, uh, those folks that have crept in to the church, uh, those are the ones you need to watch out for. Don't go after each other. Go after them. They're the problem. They're the ones that are dividing the church. You guys need to take care of one another. You need to look out for each other. You need to consider each other more important than yourselves. So if you really want to split a church, Paul says, uh, keep acting prideful. Let the anxiety build up until you start quarreling and fighting. Focus on the things of the world rather than on your heavenly citizenship. Attack each other rather than the real problems. Focus on yourself rather than serving each other, and you surely will tear the church in half. Be prideful. Just be prideful. That's all it takes to rip a church apart. There's a story that I read to a Sunday school class a while ago. There was a church down in Texas. It was the laughing stock of the community when they found out that one of the elders there um, at one of the annual business meetings, I believe it was, a, a banquet they were having, a child passed through the line before the elder and the child got a bigger piece of ham on his plate than the elder did. And the result was a church split. It was a laughing stock of the community. They drug Christ's name through the mud. It was in all the local newspapers. But beloved, pride can get in the way of any church. Pride in the individual has a corporate effect on the whole. At this point, I want to recommend to you, I believe we carry it in the book nook. I don't know if Michael's here or not. It's a small little booklet. It's wafer thin, uh, but it's called From Pride to Humility. And I would recommend that book very highly to you. Let me just read a quote for you out of it. He says, Pride is the mindset of self. It is a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. It's a focus on self and the service of self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation, and a desire to control and use all things for self. It's all about you. And then he goes on to list some manifestations of pride. And just listen and see if, you, see if you can see yourself here in any of these. The first manifestation of pride is anger. Anger. When people don't get what they want, when they don't get what they feel like they've got to have, they get angry. They, they worship their own control rather than God's control, and they become angry. I'll just read through this list. Seeing yourself as better than others. That's pride. 
perfectionism, having to have everything just your way and perfectly dialed in, is pride. Talking too much, talking too much about yourself, seeking independence or control, a lack of service, being defensive or blame-shifting, a lack of admitting when you are wrong, a lack of asking forgiveness, being impatient or irritable with others, voicing preferences or opinions when nobody asks, minimizing your own sin and shortcomings, and maximizing others' sin and shortcomings. And finally, being jealous or envious. These are all manifestations of pride. And I don't know about you, but I see myself in some of these, (laughs) many of them. But be prideful if you want to split a church. Church splits usually are not the product of, of doctrinal differences. They are usually the result of pride manifesting itself and an inability to humble yourself and get along with others. Without the mind of Christ, a church will split. Seventh. The seventh proven method to split a church. Turn to the book of Colossians, just to the right. Forget who you are in Christ and adhere to false doctrines. You can fill in the blanks there. Forget who you are in Christ and adhere to false doctrines. Uh, The book of Colossians, uh, don't need to take a lot of time to build the background here, but a pre-Gnostic sort of heresy has crept into the church, which is a combination of Jewish and Gentile beliefs. Uh, Darkness, uh, just absolute darkness. It's begun to affect the church uh, in Colossae, so Paul writes to the Colossians in an attempt to remind them of actually what sound biblical doctrine is. And the reminder is not that hard to understand. Chapter 1, this is who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Right? That's pretty easy. Chapter 2, here's the truth about who you are in Christ. It's, in a sense, an admonition against a false teaching. And it's instruction in true teaching. This is Paul's polemic against the false teachers. Verses 9 to 10 of chapter 2. He tells you your position in Christ. Verse 11, he talks about your circumcision in Christ. Verses 12 through 15, your resurrection in Christ. The old you has died. The new you now lives in Christ. Chapter 2 also constitutes, as I said, Paul's polemic against false teachers who were teaching strange and weird doctrines. Uh, Verses 16 to 17 of chapter 2 is legalism. Verses 18 to 19 is false worship. And verses 20 to 23 is asceticism. Asceticism. And then chapter 3 on into 4, 1 through 6 is now how you behave as a believer in Christ, your conduct in Christ. So if I could summarize it this way, understand who Christ is and what he has done for you. Chapter 2, understand who you are in Christ and watch out for doctrine. Watch out for false doctrine. And then chapter 3, learn how to live as this new person in a corporate setting. Unless, of course, 
you want to split a church. Then disregard all of this. By all means, forget who Christ is. Forget who you are in Christ and conduct yourself as an unbeliever would. And this, unfortunately, is where most of the church is today. Doctrine has become, in a sense, a four-letter word. It's unfashionable to speak of doctrine being the thing that unites us. The, the norm today is to minimize the doctrinal statement in order to get as many people in as possible. Doctrinal deviation is almost expected now. Remember that church I told you about that, that uh, David was uh, arbitrating at? Their doctrinal statement was split in half. And so you could be a member of the church by only adhering to the first half of the doctrinal statement, not the last half of the doctrinal statement. If you wanted to teach in the church, then you had to agree to all of it. But what does that do? That creates an inclusiveness for everybody. Anything you want to believe is okay on these last doctrines here, as long as you're not divisive about it, right? But here they are in the middle of division. Doctrinal deviation is almost expected now. You know, strange things are believed on by the church today. Not much different than what Paul had to deal with in his day. There is still legalism in the church. There is still false worship and there is still asceticism. Look what he says uh, in verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Why would you do that? That's asceticism. God doesn't care about that stuff. These are matters which he says have, in verse 23, to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of, does he say little value? They're of no value against fleshly indulgence. You cannot beat your body into submission. You cannot deny things in order to grow in your relationship with Christ. You are perfect in Christ before the eyes of God. You cannot commend yourself further to God by abusing your body. Doctrines such as uh, the new perspective on Paul, open theism, health and wealth gospel, every kind of charismatic deviation... These things have ripped the church apart because doctrine is no longer the thing that unites us. Our people are awash in biblical ignorance. And perhaps no greater danger to the church has been promoted than that of human psychology. Human psychology. It is a religion. It attempts to deal with guilt differently than what the Bible says. It explains away the reasons why people are guilty, blaming it on environment or upbringing or health or disease or some other thing. But its efforts to eliminate guilt are really diverse. The Bible says that we are guilty before God, and it tells us how to deal with that guilt. But, but there are five ways, really, in particular, that psychology tells you to deal with guilt. And one of them is to sin more. You need to sin more, not less. Because what will happen then is you will cause yourself 
to become numb to that sin and you won't feel the guilt anymore. So, for instance, uh, one pastor, uh, actually I take that back, it was a Christian counselor, uh, told a immoral female client that what she needed to do was enter into more immoral relationships so that she would not feel the uncomfortable feelings associated with it anymore. Just You need to sin more. And that way you won't feel it so acutely anymore. Secondly, they say take chemicals. Take a pill to numb yourself rather than to deal with the sin. It's easier. Just take a pill. Rather than deal with the guilt in a biblical way. Third, blame shift. Blame shift. We're all familiar with this one. Who's the cause of all your problems? Your parents. Blame somebody else, right? They push your buttons because they installed them. Blame shift. Give it to them. Somebody else did this to me. Let me ask you a question. Is God sovereign or is he not? The things that have come your way in your life, your entire past is a product of God's dealing in your life to bring you to this point. You can't blame somebody for it. You can only give praise to God for it. Trying to blame others is not recognizing God's sovereignty. Fourth, self-esteem. You deserve better, right? You're number one. Uh, you can't love others till you love yourself. How many of you have heard that? Well, what does the Bible teach us? It says, first you die, and then you can love others because Christ now lives in you. Fifth, self-gratification. When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Right? When life gets hard, go out and numb yourself by going on a shopping spree. Drink to excess. Uh, pleasure. Go out and take vacations. You need two weeks. Uh, what about denial of self? Where does that come in? See, these things are contrary to biblical teaching. Anything that is man-centered is a false doctrine. We have died in Christ. It is no longer us who lives, but Christ in us. Behold, you are a new creature in Christ, right? Behold, the old things have passed away. So doctrine that is anti-scriptural is destructive to the church. Our doctrine is what unites us. You've been bought with a price. And the content of your faith matters greatly. So forgetting who you are in Christ and imbibing strange doctrines is an excellent and proven way to split a church. Without a doctrinal foundation, the church is adrift. Number eight. I'm going to have you flip over to the book of James, if you will comes after Hebrews to the right. This kind of ties in with what I was just saying. Number eight, if you want to fill in the blanks here, blame God for your problems with the result that your anger becomes unchecked. Blame God for your problems with the result that your anger becomes unchecked. 
chapter 1 and 4 is mostly what we'll be looking at here this morning. Uh, James is more than likely the first New Testament book written about 44 to 49 A.D. And he's writing to the Jewish dispersion, uh, which is undergoing persecution or trials. And thus, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The problem was that in the midst of the trials, there were those who were saying that God was tempting them to sin. Uh, that God is bringing this about so that we'll sin. Uh, and instead of them looking at it as a trial, they were looking at it as a temptation. But God tempts no one. Uh, verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And we're tipped off to the resultant anger here in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And this is really where our focus will be. James instructs the believers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then you see in the next verse, he says, For the anger of God does not achieve the, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Uh, we also see over in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, that anger has led to quarrels and conflicts among the body of Christ there. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The point is here that uh, the body's being ripped apart because of these trials, because people are saying that God is, is tempting them to sin. They're blaming God for their problems. And the result is they're becoming angry over it. And the point is that when, when things don't go the way people plan, what happens? They get angry. And, and they get angry at each other, even though they're primarily angry at God. If God loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen to me. The result in James is divisions in the church. Uh, look at 4, 1 to 2 again. I mean, what, what is there? Quarrels, conflicts, envy, murder. It escalates. And James' answer is the same for everyone. He says over 4, 7, uh, just like we saw in Philippians, submit, therefore, to God, right? Draw near to God. Verse 9, be miserable. Verse 10, humble yourself. The answer is to lower yourself and to exalt God in your life. To not try to control yourself, but to glory in God's control. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. In the midst of problems, we're to convey heavenly wisdom. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Stop right there for a moment. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart results in arrogance, which equals Lying against the truth. 
lying against the truth. We saw in Second Peter, true knowledge. This is the lie that is just the opposite. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The the answer to the divisions, the answer to the fighting, the quarreling, the envying, the backstabbing, the slander, the murder is peace through humility. It's, It's understanding that trials come in life and nothing takes God by surprise. God brings these things your way. Without trials, how would your faith ever grow? You have to have trials in order for your faith to grow. But if you blame God for your problems, you will be an angry person. And the result will spell out problems for the unity of the church. Again, individual sin, corporate dimension. It's your individual sin problem, but it affects the body as a whole. I'm really not going to cover anger here in detail, but let me just say this. Anger is usually a problem for people who like control. For people who want to control everything, when they can't control it, they get angry. And rather than worshiping God for His control, they become angry because they can't control. It's holding on to your self-will and it makes you an angry person. So words spoken in anger, outbursts of anger towards other believers is murder in your heart. It's idolatry against God. And it's a great way to tear down other people and the church of God. If you really want to split a church, then blame God for your problems with the result that you're an angry person. Number nine. First John. I'm thinking this is kind of a timely message, too, being that we have the business meeting tonight. You know, um, some of us pastors get together with pastors from other churches in the area. And um, one of the pastors, uh, I think he's in the high desert, Carlos, uh, was telling us that at their annual business meeting, they had to call the police in um, because... Faction started, people started brawling, and they had to call the police in to, to uh, regain peace. Beloved, we are blessed here. <laughs> we are really blessed here, i got to tell you. Another proven method for splitting the church is to walk in darkness. Darkness, First John. Uh, By the end of the Apostle John's ministry, a schism between the false teachers and the true teachers had developed. Um, There were two groups, really. There were those who were true believers who who believed the truth and unbelievers who believed a lie. And so the apostolic faith, which John was communicating, was obviously the truth. 
these other things were the lie. And the point was that John was saying, uh, verses 1 through 4, that apostolic faith produces apostolic fellowship. Uh, You don't have a church unless you have the apostolic faith. That's the bottom line. You don't believe the truth. The apostles were giving firsthand eyewitness testimony. And so he says um, in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? If you want to have fellowship with the church, you have to come to our side. Everybody else is believing something false. That's what he's saying. The book as a whole, if you'll look at verses 1, 5 through 2, 17, uh, what he is saying is that Christian assurance is based on our response to three truths about who God is. Three truths about who God is. And the first one is that God is light. God is light. You see that in verse 5. Secondly, God is truth. And third, God is love. God is light. God is truth. God is love. And our response to those truths are the test of true fellowship. In particular, 1.5 to 2.17, which really kind of drives the whole book. He says we can have assurance through the test of fellowship based on how we respond to the truth that God is light. And I'm building on something here, and I hope you will catch this. Uh, Verse 5, God is light, and he is the basis for any and all fellowship. God is light. Verses 6 through 10, the hindrance to fellowship is the denial of sin. And this is, of course, a response to what the false teachers were saying at the time. We don't sin. We never sin. So John says, and this is the key, really, over in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So in context, walking in darkness is hating your brother in Christ. Walking in the light is loving your brother in Christ. And I'll prove it to you because 1 John 2, 9 through 11 Read along with me here. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness till now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You hate your brother, you're in darkness. That's what he says. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you, that, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, 
How does the love of God abide in him? Answer? It doesn't. It doesn't. The word world's goods, by the way, is bios. We get uh, biosphere from it. We get biology. And it, it has to do with the possessions of the world. That's how John is using it. Um, the things that sustain life. The, the food, the clothing, the shelter. And he's saying the neglect of the poor among you, those that don't have the world's goods and you have them and you don't share them with those brothers, how does the love of God abide in you? That's hating your brother by not sharing what you have. Finally, chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The point is that God demonstrated actively his love for mankind by sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus loved others by giving himself. We show our love to others by giving ourselves, by dying to self, living for Christ, loving the brethren, which is the church of God. By the way, uh, the word propitiation is used four times in the New Testament as a noun. And twice it appears in this book. And why do I say that? Because propitiation is, means reconciliation. It means not only God taking care of your sin, but God turning away His anger and His wrath towards you. When God propitiated um, your sin, it means He turned away His wrath. You no longer abide under wrath in Christ. Uh, look at 2. 2. In this verse, he says, God is the God himself is the object of the reconciliation. He says he himself is the propitiation, right, for our sins. And then over in 410. There, God is the subject of the reconciliation. He sent his son to be the propitiation. So in one verse, God himself is the propitiation over in this verse. He sent his son to be the propitiation. Well, what's the point? Well, like I said, the propitiation is not simply the removal of guilt. It's the turning away of God's wrath, right? First Thessalonians 5. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God has turned away his anger towards you, who are you not to turn away your anger towards your brethren? That's the point. You are walking in darkness if you hate your brother. You do not know the light. You don't understand the light if you hate your brethren. You are lying against the truth. To hate your brothers is to walk in darkness, and you cannot know God if you do. This is the test. This is the test of fellowship. This is our assurance. If you walk in darkness, you will destroy apostolic faith, which is the unity of the Godhead. Right? We've been talking about that all along. 1-3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. goes back to John 17. 
The church is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. To tamper with the unity of that dwelling place is to tamper with the unity of the Godhead. You will divide Christ. You will divide the Spirit. The church is the temple of God. It is the Spirit's dwelling place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.17, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So, walking in darkness or hating your brethren is an excellent proven method for splitting a church. And this, in fact, may be one of the best ways to split a church. It's in my top ten. You will tear a church apart if you hate each other. We are to be different. God says we are to love one another. When John was an old man, close to 100 years old, they'd carry him in the midst of the congregation and he would just say, he would just sit there and he would say, my little children love one another, love one another. That's what the early church records for us. John understood that God is light and God is love. And if you know God, you will imitate him. Verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We are the dwelling place of the spirit of God. I think uh, we have new members coming in this morning, do we not? So I will go ahead and stop here and I will take David up on his offer and we will cover the last three next week. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't think it's anyone's desire in this room to split a church. Uh, we, we look at these passages almost in a way to stimulate our thinking to just the opposite. That we would be those that would be diligent to protect the unity of your church. The one which you purchased with the blood of your very Son. Our Father, it is our desire that this church would continue to be unified in its goals and desires. And uh, to glorify Christ in this community that we would walk in holiness and reverence and humility one with another, that we would die to self and that we would live for Christ. Our Father, our pride gets in the way. Our, our inability to get along, our anger, all the manifestations of pride that come so quickly to us when things don't go the way we want them to. Our Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for that that you would help us to be humble before you, that you would help us to repent, to turn from our sin and to turn towards God and to confess and to continually renew our minds with the Word of God. Lord, help us to not indulge our flesh, but to walk in your Holy Spirit that we might build up the unity of this body. We pray for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.